Real paradises are unpavable. All winds are really just part of one big wind. The root systems of many plants put ours to shame. But if everyone had two palms, it should be dirt doesn't hurt. Blue skies whenever, sailors do whatever. You'd think there'd be more berries. The world couldn't handle bigger gnats. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the ninth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. Out of All Doors is a podcast about the outdoors. We like it. We like to make it. And we like it when you like it, so why not try liking it? Who knows, maybe you'll like liking it. We would love that. It has now been one month since our previous episode, and that brings us to May, the birthday month. Since human beings first started giving birth on certain days, May has been the best month in which to do so. I, for example, was born on a day in May, as was Ghostface Killa, and the list goes on and on and on. A simple internet search will quickly and decisively prove beyond all doubt that May really is, by any reasonable interpretation of the title, the birthday month. But this isn't just some arbitrary assignation made by suit-wearing, shiny-shoed, stuffed shirts and top hats sitting around a conference table in a boardroom in an office building in the financial district of a center of economic power in a country with a high GDP on a planet where people may not actually bow down and pray to the dollar, but boy oh boy do they worship it all the same. May has earned its reputation as the birthday month, fair and square, and I'm here to tell you how. The first thing you'll notice about the exceptional suitability of May for birthdays is that the trees have heralded the arrival of another of my birthdays by finally growing some leaves. Contrary to a popular myth, one's birthday suit is not an ideal clothing choice for a birthday, and the trees know this, so in May they put on some tasteful greenery. And while we're here, I should point out that birthday suit is actually a misnomer. I think it's a shame that nudity has become so prominently associated with birthdays, and we should really do all we can to reverse this perception. Sure, most of us are born naked, but what's the very first thing the doctor does after snipping the umbilical cord? Why, she slips that baby into a summer dress or some khaki shorts as quickly as she possibly can, which is very quick because she's a doctor, and doctors are good with their hands, which is good because it can be difficult to manage the tiny button fly in a pair of khaki shorts designed for a newborn, especially if the baby is premature, in which case the khaki shorts are even smaller, if you can imagine. Another thing that makes May the obvious correct choice for the title of the birthday month is that it's not already all clogged up with stuff like Christmas, Tax Day, and the anniversaries of major tragedies, except for the Hindenburg, which many practically-minded people now actually consider one of the better tragedies because it steered the human race away from an over-reliance on blimps. May is also a month of great mystical power. You'll notice that you can stay up later during May, do more push-ups, have an easier time losing weight, and that you can add a full octave to your singing range, which is a boon to any birthday celebration, obviously. Why else is May the birthday month? Well, one reason is that, in a sense, it's self-perpetuating. That is, the more it is the birthday month, the more it becomes the birthday month. This is sort of a chicken or the egg scenario. Do chickens decide when to have their eggs, or do the eggs decide when they want to come out? The answer, as with many things, is that it's a little of both, depending on the case. Another thing about May that makes it an ideal choice for the birthday month is that we associate it with party hats. 
What else do we associate with party hats? You do the math. One huge reason that May is the birthday month is because what? Is November going to be the birthday month? Ha! <laughs> May, on the other hand, can be trusted to rise to the occasion. And one thing I really like about having a birthday during the birthday month is how much everyone wants me to be happy and how sincere they are when they say it and how far out of their way they're willing to go to make sure it happens. That's that birthday month spirit really shining through and it makes a big difference. People just feel like making a birthday special in May. And I always do my part by making sure that I'm not easy to please so that everyone will feel a genuine sense of satisfaction and accomplishment when they finally make me happy. Every year, people look forward to heaving that big sigh of relief at the end of the night when I finally concede that my birthday has actually been pretty good. And do you know what? The birthday month has actually been pretty good this year. So heave your sigh of relief, and let's make it even better with another episode of Out of All Doors. Let's begin, shall we? These are the five people you meet at an outdoor ultra marathon. Number one, the groundhog. The groundhog is infamous in outdoor ultra marathons for his underhanded and mischievous tactics, most of which involve him building elaborate underground tunnels he uses to reduce his travel distances above ground, securing him the top positions in many races. The groundhog is particularly vindictive towards the top runners setting up booby traps for them to fall into, chewing trees to fall into their path, and even biting their legs in some instances. The groundhog is difficult to catch, though, for whenever race officials seem to have him cornered, he vanishes, only to later pop up having just crossed the finish line. Number two, the living metaphor. The living metaphor is an outdoor ultramarathon favorite. He dresses up in a beige bodysuit to which he attaches a series of balloons each balloon representing a concept he's running from. The balloons say things like personal responsibility, professional unhappiness, your own inadequacy, criminal charges, and demons. The balloons do not ever stop chasing the living metaphor as he races and races through the ultramarathon, shouting and wailing the entire way. Number three, the pogo stick man. Yeah, there he is, bouncing on a pogo stick through the entire 100 miles of the ultramarathon. Oh, what an amazing individual. He's so interesting and impressive. Gosh, if only the rest of us could have a pogo stick and then we could bounce along. Number four, the Eritrean Prince. The Eritrean Prince doesn't so much run the outdoor ultramarathon as he is carried through it by his team of loyal servants in his coterie of great beasts, including elephants and camels. Like Hannibal, he commands his handlers to take him through the high mountain meadows and endless valleys of the ultramarathon, and they do so, hoisting him high while he feasts on figs, his animals growling and bumbling behind him. He'll frequently give other racers playful whips from his favorite cat-o'-nine-tails, which the other racers take in good humor to avoid being executed. The race officials grant the Eritrean Prince the complimentary first-place prize each year. Number five, Craig. Craig, 
really shouldn't be here. I mean, he's in no shape to run a race, much less 100 miles of overland travel with substantial increases in elevation, not to mention loose, rocky terrain. Craig can't help breathing heavily from simply rising from his favorite easy chair. He sweats through his t-shirt walking to get the newspaper. When he sits around the house, he really sits around the house. Now look at him, trying to run a hundred miles. We'd, we'd be amazed to see him complete one mile. One! What on earth was he thinking? There he is, right now, still visible from the starting point, eating an entire ham he's been hiding somewhere. Craig, what are you doing? Why did you come here? Why do you come back every year and force us to include you on this list? You shouldn't be on this list. Craig, you must know that. And now he's lying down. He's lying down. That ham did him in. He's taking a nap, ladies and gentlemen. He has more than 99 miles to go, and he's taking a nap. Craig! Craig! What have you done? Hello, poetry fans. My name is Ben. That's all, just Ben. Well, okay, Cousin Ben, or maybe even Poet Ben, if you must. And you must. You must, and I trust that the thrust of this segment will take you right to the height of the night you realize that nature is amazing and worthy. Worthy of your admiration and your poetry. So let's get the introductions out of the way, shall we? I am Ben. I've already shared that. And you are? Nice to meet you. You and I are breaking poetic bread tonight because Adam has asked me to come and share some of my nature-themed poetry with you, the audience. But let's lose that archaic poet-audience wall of separation from now on out. You and I and we all live and breathe and poem in nature's embrace, in the outdoors. The outdoor of the office building of conventional thinking of underappreciating she-nature and her mysterious and menacing beauty. I could take a lot of time to talk to you about my life and my love and my passion, but I think we can resonate together later as we work this out. Nature is patient, but we are not. So let's just plunge right into the poetry, okay? My first poem is called, I'll Clean It When I Feel Like It. There are those short-sighted fools who will say that the wilderness is such a mess, cluttered and dirty and dangerous. O ye of little hindsight, think back now to your thirteen-year-old self and your room of chaos and angst, glorious teetering canyon walls made from piles of skateboard magazines and graphic novels, swamps of soggy carpet spots from all the unattended Dr. Pepper big gulps that crashed down like so many rotten trees, the mice and roaches roaming the plains of your wilderness like wolves and dingoes, searching with jaws snapping for anything that they can overwhelm and devour. And over near the stinking clothes mountains of rich purple video game logos, deep blue basketball team jerseys, and dark green sardonic cultural statement t-shirts, lives that race of miniature proto-ape men huddling in the shadows of that burnt-out husk that was once your G.I. Joe aircraft carrier, with toothpick spears and fears of the legendary gigantic house-cat beast that picks them off at night when they venture forth in search of stale Cheetos and moldy sandwich crumbs. Leave it alone, Mom! 
I know where everything is. I have a system. It's just the way I like it. Ease up off Mother Nature, bro. She has it just the way she likes it, too. And now let's check in again with our friend Harrison Blum, the amateur bird watcher. Hello, listeners and Eleanor. I found an Oriole shot through the neck this morning, on my way to check milk prices at the Okie Doke. He was on the doormat, right there in my footpath, as if he'd been waiting for me to open the door when the pellet passed through him. At first I thought he was sleeping, but thought better, as there was no evidence of a nest. Also, my doormat was stained a soft brown, right under the Oriole's tiny neck hole. I first suspected the neighbor boy, as he's been skulking near the municipal electrical box behind the complex, where I normally see and hear my birds. He rides his scooter down our hallways, leaves gum on the elevator buttons, and once called me a turd wagon for washing off my sandals near the dumpsters. I've tried imagining him furiously and sadistically pumping an air rifle, and I can almost do it. I can almost see it clearly. Unfortunately, I can't see it clearly enough. He may be a turd wagon himself, but I don't suspect he's capable of bird murder. Not yet, at least. Additionally, the Oriole is alien to the Midwest. Many, if not all, of them reside in Baltimore and its surrounding areas. Given the circumstances, I considered that the Oriole might have been shipped to me, but without a shipping container or return address, it seems unlikely. A male person won't deliver a throat-shot bird, even if it's properly stamped. Admittedly, my first thought, after pondering the neighbor boy's guilt, was to accuse John. Orioles are not native to Arizona, but perhaps he owned a second home on the East Coast. Perhaps he'd heard the podcast and felt uneasy about my attempted communications with Eleanor. I called John's home in Arizona just to be sure, and we had an informative, albeit brief, conversation after which he politely asked me to never call again. As it turns out, he does not live in, nor does he own a second home in Baltimore, so that rules out another hypothesis. Anyway, I put on some oven mitts, placed the Oriole in a Folgers can, and buried him in the commons, near the trunk of the one ash tree that's yet to be ribboned for chemical treatment. Afterwards, I Xeroxed a note and pinned it around the complex, asking for an explanation but everyone seems to think that I shot the Oriole, since I'm the bird guy. Why would I pellet a bird only to lay him at my own doorstep? This is a question no one seems willing to answer. This afternoon, Madeline, who lives on two, knocked on my door with an armful of my flyers, demanding to know why I'd pasted photos of deceased birds throughout the complex. She threatened to shoot me through the neck, so I said, how'd you know the Oriole was neck shot? And she said, because you wrote Neck Shot Oriole, who did it? A few minutes later, her husband came over and threatened to punch me through the wall. I asked him to back away, which only seemed to convince him it was safe to walk even closer. He too accused me of shooting the Oriole myself, then asked to see the menagerie of dead birds I keep in my closet, a rumor the neighbor boy is apparently spreading. I tried explaining that it couldn't have been me. First, they're not even native to Iowa and I don't have a feasible means of transportation to Baltimore. How am I going to shoot an Oriole through the neck with a pellet gun? I'm a rotten shot. And even if I was able to drive to Baltimore and pluck an Oriole from the sky with a sniper's accuracy, the next part of my plan is to drive back here and plant the bird at my own front door, 
make a fuss, ruin my oven mitts while burying the bird under the ash tree, get ash bark in my eye, then print out some flyers? Not likely. And he said, you sure have given this a lot of thought. So I said, how can I prove I haven't? And besides, as it turns out, Orioles are indigenous to Iowa, so that argument, which only seemed to ignite his anger, is moot to begin with. I suppose we all learn something new every day. Please tell Eleanor I say hello. Love, Harrison. Well, we hear it out of all doors. All thought we were finally rid of Maya, my outdoor-hating former babysitter who's only two years older than me and who had her eye pecked out by a bird while trying to force me to play inside and who then went on to steal the web address of the Out of All Doors blog out from under us so that she could turn it into a horrendous blog in praise of the indoors called The Sheltered Life. But after a long silence, she is posted again, and this one is truly horrifying. If you have a weak stomach, I encourage you to skip ahead, but for those of you who think you can handle it, I'm going to read Maya's most recent post now so you can see just how sickening a hatred for the outdoors can become. This one's titled... House fixing your pets. Hello again, adorable readers. We all know that when people train their pets to do their business outside, they call it housebreaking them. Breaking is right. Mother evolution has been hard at work for the past billion years or so trying to get living things to stop doing their duty outside. She finally succeeded with us humans, or at least most of us humans, yuck, campers, and was right on the cusp of achieving the same thing for dogs and cats. But leave it to us knucklehead humans to flush all that progress right down the toilet by teaching our pets not to flush it right down the toilet. I guess some of us have a little more evolving still to do. I, however, am on team nature, and so I would never think of housebreaking my beloved little Pugly Wugglies. In fact, ever since I adopted Wooster and Jeeves, I've been hard at work house-fixing them, showing them how everything their little doggy hearts desire can be done in a more fun and more civilized way right here inside the house. I must say, so far it's been a huge success. My Puggles used to love running and playing outdoors, but now they're so house-fixed, they wouldn't want to step foot outside the house even if I gave them the chance. They've even started expressing their disdain for the outdoors by clawing and barking at it through the front door every night. My program almost works too good. I can barely sleep. Now, my house-fixing regimen is still in development, but I wanted to share with all of you some of the most successful methods I've come up with so far so you can try them out on your own furry roommates. 1. If your dogs are like most dogs, and most people's dogs are, then they love nothing more than chasing squirrels through the park. Now you might be thinking that's an easy activity to move indoors, but think a little more. Do you really want a smelly, disease-infested squirrel running around in your house? Me neither. Instead, do what I did. Here's what you'll need. Two skateboards, two pieces of rope, and one cute little doggy-sized squirrel costume. Tie the skateboards together end to end. Put your newly squirrely dog on the front one and put the other on the back one. Then, using the other piece of rope as a lead, pull your train of doggy delight all around the house. Not to brag on my home ex skills, but the first squirrel costume I made was so realistic that Wooster and Jeeves found it and tore it to pieces. In fact, they've now done that to ten different squirrel suits. I'm almost out of fabric. Number two. 
As we know from about every cartoon ever, one of Dog's favorite activities is digging for bones in the backyard. However, I don't know about you, but my backyard is outside and I want to keep it that way. So, how do you endorify this classic doggy pastime? This one's actually pretty easy. All you need is some pit-like area in your house. It could be a basement, a sunken living room, an indoor pool, or just a 50-gallon drum in a hallway. Scatter a few bones around, then fill it up a good five or six feet deep with packing peanuts. If you order as much stuff from Amazon as I do, you'll have plenty. Then just toss in your little four-legged archaeologist and let him scoop and squirm around until he starts to howl with frantic delight from deep beneath the styrofoam soil. Now, I can almost hear you saying, Maya, these ideas are great, but my dog has special breed-specific needs that just can't be met indoors. Don't give up so soon, reader. You just need to be a little more creative. For example, let's say you've got a St. Bernard. Well, just fill up your bathtub with ice, climb in, and start yelling for help. Your dog will never feel more fulfilled than when he's bounding up the stairs to rescue you with the bottle of rosé that you tied around his neck. Or maybe you've got a wolf dog. He might think there's nothing more fun than howling at the moon, but that's just because he's never tried gazing up quietly at the ceiling fan. Time to expand his horizons. Come on, readers, give it a try. Once he's seen how great it is to be house-fixed, your dog will start calling you his best friend. Until next time, Maya. And then there's another post from two days later. Uh, It says, well, readers, I try my best to stay away from controversy, but apparently some of the outdoor-loving Neanderthal powers that be just can't get enough of knocking what they haven't tried. Based on the email I just received, it seems I need your help, readers. Show your support for Sheltered Life Nation by tweeting at ASPCA to let them know that house-fixing is most definitely not a form of animal abuse, and that if anyone should have their pets forcibly removed by the state, it's the heartless owners who let their pets roll around in the parasite-infested grass outside. Well, I warned you that it would be gruesome, and uh, it was, of course, but... Uh, I'm I'm happy to see in this the second post here that it seems as if more rational readers of Maya's blog have have taken matters into their own hands and seem to be reaching out to try to stop her. And I encourage you to do the same in whatever way you can. If any of you know how to make viruses that crash websites, that might be something you could try. Or just um, if you could find some way to harass her into stopping. Uh, maybe threatening her or something like that, um, those those all might be workable solutions. And I'm, again, sorry to have to put you through this, but it's just it's something that affects the out-of-all-doors out family directly, and I just, I just felt that it needed to be addressed. Back to the, the good stuff. And now it's time for another joke with Cousin Brent. This is Cousin Brent, and before we begin the joke, I'd like to apologize that I did not contribute last month. For reasons that are personal and only concern me and a girl with midnight hair and twilight eyes, the first rains of spring are a time of reflection and meditation, not so much for laughter. But, as Nebraska awakens from its gray and green slumber, and the stalks of corn and dewberries stretch themselves skyward to sip on drams of sunlight, the spirit of laughter is reborn, wide-eyed and thirsty. Also, I don't know if Adam mentioned this, but while May is his birthday month, I was born around this time as well. Now, I won't divulge exactly when, because while Adam and I, we have different views about birthdays. 
While I don't begrudge anyone a celebration, I've always believed that nobody gets a day. It's dangerous to lay claim to a block of time. The moment you do, everything that occurs within that time reflects upon you. For instance, there was a flood in Nebraska earlier this month. The waters poured into suburban basements onto just vacuumed carpets and low-lying electronics. Roads were blocked off and cars were involved in accidents. But now, because of Adam's declaration, this terrible flood didn't just happen in May, it happened on Adam's birthday month. It's something he'll have to live with for the rest of his life. And I don't know if my old bones could handle the pressure and guilt that comes with ownership of time. Nevertheless, birthdays are significant. They represent a milestone in our ceaseless march back into the dust of the planet. And later this month, it will be 22 years since my march began. So, this month my joke is about time. It's about a woodsman. To be more specific, a woodsman who lived his whole life in the impenetrable shade of the deep black forest in Bavaria. Now he fashioned a belt entirely out of sundials. What would you call that? But before we answer that question, you might be wondering what drove a man to make more than one sundial. And I'd argue it's the same thing that drove man, as a whole, to celebrate and recognize birthdays. It's a primal fascination with the recording of time. But, ever since the mess of our universe was thrown together, our own infant bodies and nature itself has recorded time for us. The piercing light of dawn reaching to the bottom of our eyelids, its golden rays, like claws, hoisting them open. The silence of dusk lulling us back into beds of straw. The melody of cicadas, a demand that we curl our exhausted limbs around our sleeping half of earth and rest as well. But we rebelled against the ancient order of time. Mischievous gods grabbed our freezing Neanderthal wrists, put stone and wood in our palms, and slapped them together until sparks set fire to the night sky. Our eyes, two torches in our skulls, drank in the mysteries of the wild dark with an insatiable greed. We recorded time on our own, sleepless terms. Carving our histories into the rocky bones of the earth, now betrayed. And so, like Adam and his month of May, we took ownership. We slapped a saddle on a bronco we had no hope of breaking in, and we put our untested boots in the stirrups anyways. So it's ours now. From a hike on scree fields up the side of Mount Reynolds to a quiet conversation in a vacant shopping mall in Odessa, Missouri, the hurricane seasons, the floods in spring, the rising sun, the summers our shoes lit up on the pedals of our first bikes as we tried to ride fast enough to drown out the voices of our worried mothers calling us back inside, the frigid night you closed your twilight eyes and kissed me outside of the hay market while your sister drove in circles telling you to hurry up, our joy bubbling over into laughter, the only reason we stopped kissing, and our foreheads pressed together feeling the warm sparks of reckless rebellion between us on a winter night in Lincoln, Nebraska. That night is ours now. I've recorded it, memorized it, and revisited it until my exhausted mind finally found rest before the sunrise. And I know that at least that moment, unlike the belt of sundials made by the woodsman who lived in the shade, was not a waste of time. We're very interested in buying this cathedral. It's got some great ornateness. We like how it's pretty much all ornate, actually. That's a strong feature. We'd heard it was very ornate, that's what first interested us, but it's even more ornate than advertised, and for that we commend it. But can we see the belfry? We'd like to see the belfry now. The realtor leads us to the belfry steps. 
He tells us that if we just take these steps, they'll take us right to the belfry, if that's where we really want to go, which of course it is. Is the belfry ornate? That's the crucial question to which we must discover the answer before we purchase a cathedral. We mount the stairs in a single file line, up and up and up. But when the first of us reaches the top step, his foot triggers a mechanism that converts the belfry stairs into a slide that dumps us screaming down into a dark, subterranean cathedral beneath the cathedral on the surface. This subterranean cathedral is not nearly as ornate, but it has something else in its myriad rooms and halls, something dark, something alive. We have entered the battery. The lifespan of a bat is measured not in years, nor minutes, nor days, nor centuries, nor seconds, nor any other standard increments of time. The lifespan of a bat is measured in wing flaps, in the number of Z's produced during inverted slumber. The lifespan of a bat is measured in the regular pulsation of bat-exclusive emotions within its breast, feeling now one way, feeling now another way. Bats know they will die approximately one day before they die. They are out hunting bugs, they send out a high-frequency sound wave, and what bounces back warns them of the approach of something old and final, at which point they change nothing, because what would they change? Do not mourn for the bat that dies. Do not mourn for the bat that the bat that dies leaves behind. More instead for the entire rest of the world, for another bat has navigated its way through the lightless rift that leads beyond our realm and has left us pawing and sniffing at its discarded corporeal form, has left us wondering what we have done to earn a place in this moment to which we feel unequal. Do not eat the bat. It starts with a simple question. Can bats blink? And then... Years later, there you are, face to face with yet another bat, looking it right in the eyes, and you're desperately trying not to blink, because you've never seen a bat blink. But you can't be certain that they don't all just blink whenever you blink, so you never see the blinks, because your blinks and the bat's blinks are exactly simultaneous. And yes, your own mentor has called your mission a fool's errand. She says that even if you find an answer to your question, what will the world gain? Your eyes are drying out, your eyelids are twitching, you're sweating, you want to blink so badly. Your dry eyes bulge. But this bat isn't going to blink, either until you blink or ever. And either way, you'll again walk away knowing nothing except your own weakness. You blink. The man who considers it an ill omen when two bats peacefully cross paths with each other in plain view of a bishop will find the ill in every good thing, thereby becoming a royal pain. The man who considers it a splendid omen when a bat enters a common house backward will work bats into conversations in ways that would make a decent bat cringe. The man who considers it an ill omen when a bat enters one's house through a dream and then makes a racket trying to get out will pout when disbelieved. The man who considers it an omen of good fortune when a bat brings him a big wad of cash should realize that this isn't an omen of good fortune, this is just good fortune. The man who considers it an ill omen when a bat kills him has an issue similar to the previous man. The man who considers it a favorable omen when a bat kisses his hand should first check his ring finger. That ring is long gone. 
The man who considers it an ill omen when a bat kisses his lips should not be such a prude. The man who considers it an omen of war when a bat knocks over a suit of armor should first double check to make sure it wasn't a toad who knocked it over. Because if it was a toad, then that's an omen of a dramatic decrease in infant mortality rates and y'all should be celebrating. The man who considers it a funny coincidence when a bat has the same cough as him should wipe that smile off his face and see a doctor. The man who considers it an ill omen when a bat with tattered wings alights upon a church spire before noon needs to have an age of enlightenment. A young girl came across a dead bat in the middle of the dirt road down which she walked in sandals, holding a basket in which there were flowers of many sorts, some of which reminded the young girl of live bats in a way that defied explanation, they just did. The bat had been killed by a broken heart, but not its own, of course. The broken heart of another creature had killed the bat. The young girl could tell by the footprints leading up to, around, and away from the body of the bat. This was the young girl's great gift, diagnosing broken hearts through dubious means and blaming them for everything. She, unsqueamish as a veteran maid for a psychotic nobleman, scooped up the body of the bat and placed it among the flowers in her basket. As the young girl continued on her way home, she glanced continually down into her basket to see if life had returned to the bat's body. Why would she expect an impossible thing to happen? Was it her youth, a romantic spirit, a gap in her education? Did she know something we don't, or did she not know something we do? Whatever the case, I shouldn't tell you this, but she saw the dead bat, lying there among the flowers, blink. She saw the dead bat blink. And if that was not an omen of the affirmation of the universe aimed directly at her unbreakable heart, what was it? The subterranean cathedral has many things, chief among them the bats, but it does not appear to have an exit. We have been searching for hours, and the time has come to address the very real possibility that it's possible that we may never find it possible to leave the... Oh wait, is this an elevator? It is. We all crowd into the elevator, allowing only the best button pusher among us to choose our destination. The ground floor of the above-ground cathedral. The bats go on about their business or their pleasure, whichever it is, it looks the same. But we... We go up. We leave. The battery. Cousin Ben here, again, with another poem. So... It came about one day, while I was walking through the woods near my house, that I came across a stump, a tree stump, that was uh, been around for a long time. It was pretty rotten. I stopped when I saw this big puddle of sawdust that had spilled out of the side of the tree stump. Not because of the sawdust, but because of what I saw in the sawdust. Writing. Or at least that's what I thought it was at first. Turns out it was just the pathways of ants and termites and various other insects but it appeared as though they were ancient symbols. I kicked the tree apart with my boots, smashed the termites' nest open, sawdust flying everywhere, eggs, insects going every which way, panicking and abandoning their fortress, until I found the dead queen. Well, uh, she, she was dead when I found her, but anyway, um, 
After I was done, I was marveling just at how marvelous nature really is and swatting away the termites that had managed to crawl up on me and get on my skin. So I, I sat down right there and I, all right, a little ways away from there. And I wrote this little gem, hieroglyphs. Hieroglyphs written in sawdust by insect undertakers, describing the elaborate path to the queen's sarcophagi. Deep inside the musty tree pyramid, the allure of her treasures and exotic death beauty, worth the risk of curse and hex, drew me into the tunnels and traps, and between the snaps of mandibles and sharp hairs and crushing strength, I saw her, still and glistening, dead and glowing, gorgeous and knowing, subtler curves I have never seen than that queen's body, bright and clean. Do you know what I would have liked to have gotten for my birthday? A pair of Featherwood Frames sunglasses from FeatherwoodFrames.com. They also make frames for regular eyeglasses, and all the wood comes from locally harvested logs right there in the Miami Valley in Ohio. And they make the frames using pedal-powered machines. Imagine a stationary bike that's also a bandsaw or a power sander. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's what I imagine. Anyway, I honestly wouldn't have minded getting two pairs of Featherwood Frame sunglasses for my birthday. I would have worn one pair with my red shirts and one pair with my black shirts, those being my two most common shirt colors. At night, when it's too dark to wear sunglasses over your eyes, I would have left the Featherwood Frames glasses in charge of the house in my absence. And when all my red and black shirts were dirty and I was stuck wearing a blue or a yellow shirt, I probably would have just worn whichever pair was my favorite, because I would have a favorite. And if I completely ran out of shirts and I was forced to cover my torso with a towel tucked up under my arms like a strapless dress, I'd still be wearing jeans too, though, then I'd probably wear whichever pair of Featherwood Frame sunglasses would be more likely to draw the eyes of anyone who saw me away from my whole towel situation. If you want to buy some Featherwood Frames glasses, go to FeatherwoodFrames.com and order yourself a pair or two. If you've got the character to love both pairs equally, then more power to you. I admire your impartiality. It's a truly rare quality in this day and in this age. Featherwood frames, light as a feather would. This month, Gentlemen's Mills wants you to be aware of their many birthday party supplies, gifts, favors, and services, and they are willing to send them to your door for nothing more than a certain predetermined sum of money. Here is just a brief overview of some of the hundreds of products you can buy from Gentlemen's Mills to ensure that the next birthday party you throw is a memorable one. Gentlemen's Mills Party Mix. This tasty assortment features pretzel rods, regular pretzels, pretzel bites, pretzel shapes, twisted crunchers, and hard dough prize bites. Number two, Mind Sparkler, a party hat that emits a constant spray of pyrotechnic sparklers. The best part is that the sparklers are powered by your mind, all by the simple process of implanting copper wire conducting electrodes into your scalp. In the event of non-telepathy, a backup generator supplies the fireworks, fire hazard rating of cruel. Number three, Total Recall Party Edition, the DVD box wears a fun miniature party hat, not recommended viewing for birthday parties. 
Number four, Funbee, the real live pinata. Over the past five years, Gentleman's Mills has been developing a robotic animal, Funbee, that moves and behaves like a real animal. The good news is that Funbee is finally up and ready to go. The project comes to fruition here as Funbee can be strung from the ceiling and pummeled with real sticks for every child's amusement. The squirming and bleating are almost too real. Note, Funbee contains no candy. Number five, strapless party hats. These party hats work best when placed on a flat surface such as a table or floor. Number six, bark pinata. Many children try to eat the bark when the pinata ruptures. Number seven, pin the tail on the donkey. While blindfolded, you walk up and try to pin the tail on a donkey illustration. If you correctly pin the tail, a real life donkey is dunked in a big old dunk tank. Number eight, Gentleman's Mills eight foot party sub. This very long sandwich comes with 12 extra feet of bonus bread and one abnormally oblong bonus tomato. Number nine, Clone Clown. This clown is actually Dr. Stephen Jeffords Emeritus, who gives a lecture on the potential horrors of human cloning while attempting to maintain a spirit of lightheartedness for the children. Number 10, Gentleman's Mills Warehouse Grade Industrial Helium Tank. One of the biggest party fouls is not having enough helium to sustain your children's insatiable demand for balloons. Never have that problem again with Gentleman's Mills Warehouse Grade Industrial Helium Tank. This tank is 500,000 cubic gallons of helium. It fits easily in a backyard when all other grills, chairs, guests, balloons, and bounce houses have been removed. Number 11, Permanent Scooby. Once you get Dad into the Scooby-Doo costume to entertain the kids at the birthday party, he'll never be able to get out. He'll be Scooby forever. Permanent Scooby, formerly known as Scooby Forever. Number 12, Trick Candles. When the birthday boy or birthday girl tries to blow out these candles, they trigger a trap door under the cake, causing it to fall through the table to the ground where it's entirely devoured by competitive eater and Gentleman's Mills employee, Birch Trueforth. Number 13, Pancake. This cupcake is the size of a whole cake pan. Number 14, Pin the Donkey. We ship you a wrestling singlet as well as a donkey who is already wearing a wrestling singlet. If a high school wrestling referee witnesses you pinning the donkey, enjoy 5% off your next Gentleman's Mills order. Number 15, Go-Kart Madness. This set features one go-kart and a 20-foot circular track. Designed with small backyards in mind, this brings the thrill of the track to your own home. Number 16, Speed Rotisserie. This is no ordinary slowpoke rotisserie. This rotisserie spins at 100 revolutions per minute to cook your meat with the fastest spin imaginable. Rated by Cookfest Magazine as the fastest rotisserie in its division for one year running before being disqualified. Happy Birthday Banner Banner. This is a banner that reads Happy Birthday Banner on it. Yes, that's what we intended it to say. Tooth Necklace. Our patent pending tooth necklaces are sugary, stretchy, and just big enough to fit around your least favorite tooth. Comes in a package of eight. The perfect party favor. Number 19, Lux Lux Child Manny Petty Special. Instead of normal boring party games, the lovely ladies of Lux Lux bring their nail stations and world-class gossip to you so that all the children can have their fingernails cleaned, polished, and decorated. Requires 100% participation among party children. Number 20, Ironic Clown. This waste of space strolls around your outdoor birthday party in a shoddy clown costume, smirking and saying, I know, right? Whenever dull partygoers express the opinion that clowns are creepy. And number 21, Party Fowl. This giant fiberglass duck booms out happy quack quacks as it shoots basketball-sized manure-filled papier-mâché eggs at lamer parties in the neighborhood.
Doors. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another installment of Behind Closed Doors, the inner workings of Out of All Doors. And just as we did last month, we're going to give you, the listener, a glimpse of what goes on behind the scenes here at Out of All Doors. I'm Casey Bai, and I'll be leading you on this tour behind closed doors. You may recall that last month we revealed that Jason, who was believed to be murdered a few episodes ago, was not in fact murdered, but just a fictional creation, which I voiced by doing an impression of Adam Drent. Careful listeners may have already caught on, though, due to the slight difference between my impression and the real Adam Drent. See, Jason sounded like this. Oh, now we're cooking! So if you say pajamas, and I say pajamas... As compared to Out of All Doors host Adam Drent, who in fact sounds like this. I'll wear pajamas and give up pajamas. So a fairly big secret exposed, which got us off to a nice start on our first episode of Behind Closed Doors. But I think I've dug up a few tidbits, just revealing enough to keep you interested in what goes on behind the scenes here. So let's get started. Exclusive. Uh, okay, so I've got a bunch of notes here. Uh, let's see. Okay, oh, so at the end of each episode, during the relaxation exercise, when Adam asks you to close your eyes, he doesn't really expect anyone to actually really close their eyes, but he'd probably really like it if you did. And uh, you know how on the podcast, Adam fairly regularly mentions drinking soda. And actually what Adam does is he, he refers to drinking pop. Um, but it's, it's not like Adam lives somewhere where it's a regional thing where they say pop instead of soda. And no, I mean, Adam in, in real life calls soda soda like a normal person. It's just he thinks people who call soda pop are stupid so it's like an inside joke for he and his friends and he's he's doing it sarcastically uh gentlemen's mills uh, the company that gets a bunch of products uh, mentioned in the show you know it well like only three-fourths of the products described are actual real gentlemen's mills products the other fourth are, are just jokes just fake made-up product jokes oh and in, in addition to that a, a lot of people forget that despite being an american company gentlemen's mills were the official official sponsors of the soviet team in the 1980 olympics what the hell gentlemen's mills and matt martin you know that guy get this he owns a shania twain cd why you ask because apparently he's like the world's biggest shania twain fan i guess Eugene. Eugene, who does Woodsman Wisdom. When he was younger, he wrote a Star Trek spec script, and he thought someone would actually read it and give him a job writing for a TV show. And he waited and waited for a response in the mail. 
And apparently in his cover letter, he wrote something like, you're Gene Roddenberry and I, my name's Eugene and blah, blah. I feel such a kinship and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. No, no, he did. He didn't read it. He, he never read it. Eugene. Sad, right? Next. Uh... Squall. Squall from the Squall Takes the Bait segments. Okay. So he, he was one of those kids who just continued trick-or-treating way, way too late into life. Uh, You know what I'm talking about. Like he wouldn't even put on a costume. He'd just grab a grocery bag and go door to door, knock, knock, by himself. I'm talking high school years. What else? Uh, Oh, Harrison Blum, the bird watching guy. Harrison. Okay. So he was in Canada when he was in his 20s. And he's on a, I don't know, on a trip or whatever. And he's driving along a hillside, like mountainous road. And apparently he doesn't really know how to drive stick, but that's all they had for rentals. Uh, So he's driving this car. He doesn't even know like how to drive. And Steve, I mean, Harrison, sorry, I was thinking of someone else for a second. So Harrison loses control on a curve and hits and murders a hitchhiker. And, and I've got a ton more about Adam. Uh, let's see. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so, so Adam sometimes when in a one stall public bathroom, he will turn on the faucet. So anyone who might be outside will hear it and think he's washing his hands, but then he won't wash his hands. Um, uh, he's okay. He's trying to teach himself to play the recorder, but he's really not good at it. He watched all six seasons of private practice and then he rewatched them all once they became available on Hulu. Uh, one time he quoted Gandhi, but mistakenly attributed it to Arsenio Hall. In 2009, he made a joke about Balloon Boy that was uh, extremely distasteful in light of the fact that at the time, everyone was still under the impression that there was an actual live boy in extreme danger flying around in that balloon. And when everyone gasped, he tried to cover by saying, Jeff said that. Isn't that horrible? Uh, But then when it was revealed to be a hoax and everyone was now laughing about Balloon Boy and the joke was no longer offensive, he tried to say it again in front of the same people. A few years ago, he bought a motorcycle, but he was too afraid to ride it. Uh, But then he was too embarrassed to return it. And then time passed to the point so where he could no longer return it. But uh, ever since, he's been too embarrassed to sell it. So he just keeps it. And every once in a while, he'll pull it out when he'll notice his neighbors are out in the yard and just give it a wash in his driveway like he's fooling anyone. Uh, And he doesn't know how to spell the word definitely. Uh, He sometimes refers to himself as a feminist, but he knows he's not. He just thinks it's what people want to hear in this situation. He hates ice cream and 
Think about this. If he loves the outdoors so much, how come he's constantly saying things like, when will dolphins become extinct already? He doesn't floss. He doesn't know how to read a map. And he thinks Biodome is funnier than Blazing Saddles. I guess that'll do it for this episode, but don't worry, we'll be back next time with more tawdry secrets from behind closed doors. All of this information I should mention I got from reading through Adam's diaries, so as far as I know, it has to be true. I mean, unless somewhere down the line I or someone else discovers that, like, Adam was keeping a fake diary, Gone Girl style, or that someone else wrote it and planted it, uh, unless and until that happens... All of the things I've just said are completely canon. I'm Casey Bye, and we'll see you next time. And now, be welcome to another terrifying visit to the campfire of chills. This time, previous contributor Smoke Sinister returns with a first-person account of his truest nightmare. I got up from the campfire to head to the outhouse. I heard a groan and a hand reached out to me from the hole. I tried to help, but its strength pulled me down. I fell to the floor, which was deeper than I had imagined. I saw the opening above me, but rather than seeing what I expected inside, those soft, digested remains of the meals of yesterday, I found myself indoors. In all of the doors. Once my eyes adjusted, I saw that I was on a dance floor. A song was playing, a song I knew all too well. It was sung by Iggy Azalea, and it was the same song. But rather than it sounding like she's been forced at gunpoint to mock black people, I could kind of see it all of a sudden. It sounded unforced and musical for the first time. I got it. Under my breath, I muttered my surprised confession. She's an artist. I shrugged my shoulders and gave in to my body's urge to dance. A shadowy figure emerged from the shadows to join me on the dance floor. It was also a person I knew very well, my ex-fiance. Wasting no time on pleasantries, she launched into an emotional tirade, a vocal maraca that I was sure I'd put behind me. It was the same lashing as the big one I remember. It's conflicted logic, the train of attacks against me so long and winding that we both forgot the initial complaint that's powering the locomotive. The thinly veiled comparisons to the behavior of an imagined companion who would have treated her right. But tonight, on that dance floor, I found a new appeal to the screams, comfort in the insults that once made me feel like I had trench foot. Before long, I genuinely wished that I could listen forever. Squarely uncomfortable with the strange lens I was viewing the world through, 
I ran from the dance floor and into the bathroom to gain my bearings on who I really am. I looked in the mirror and whispered exactly that, who am I? But the mirror began to glow, figuratively glow with my answer, and my eyes dropped to look for myself. I looked down and saw a gut. My gut. And for the first time, it looked magnificent. Not muscular, not funny or not cute. I swelled with pride. I felt the gut identified me, or at least I hoped it did. Beyond even the wit that I once used to distract my company from the very gut I now loved. I looked deeply into the gut, both longing to sculpt its round shape without a fume of irony or a drop of exaggeration, but I looked deeper, deeper into the stored energy gifted by caring cooks and bottled and stored by the very genes that were combined by my parents' loving union. I looked back to the mirror and desperately tried to collect myself by asking a different question. Not who am I, but where am I? In this land have I gained a bowel's eye, cursed to view the same dreadful objects through an inescapable haze, an indoor despair, able to get away with anything under its deceptive veil of being just fine. Desperate to escape this vile prison of satisfaction and contentment, I frantically ran. I couldn't reach the outhouse hole, but I noticed two Super Mario Brothers-styled green tubes. I ran to the first and looked down and saw a beautiful out-of-all-doors vista. I heard a child complaining that he doesn't want the deer to poop. Through the other Super Mario Brothers-styled green tube, I saw another out-of-all-doors vista, and I heard a woman boasting that her sunburn actually feels great. I ran back to the first tube and crawled on top. I began to enter, but then I saw my old boss and my ex-fiance approach. He was asking me to work through the weekend, and she was whining that I work too much. At the core of my being, I'm drawn to the duo and their inescapable and unwinnable guilt trap. I reached my hand out to them, but I slipped and fell into the tube. Suddenly, I felt a strong hand grip mine and pull. But when I was pulled out of the tube, I saw a lumberjack asking what I was doing in that animal's burrow. Cousin Ben here again. Time for another poem. Do you know what makes nature so fascinating to you? Why it's so attractive? So irresistible? I'll tell you why. It's the mystery. Nature is a surprisingly skilled secret keeper and is never going to share her plans or schemes or motives with you or me. But I might be able to catch just a few partial words or whispered syllables of her conversations and therefore 
can shed a tiny bit of light of what she's up to. Here's a little poem about just such a clue. Where. Do you know why there are werewolves? Because she nature, in her infinite bio-architectural wisdom, realized that were-butterflies weren't going to have the desired effect on human culture that she was after. The Mothman's eyes may burn bright in the night, but no one writes were-butterfly romance novels, which would allow a majestic were-butterfly to attract easily gullible and fantasy-prone women to his dusty wings of death and evolutionary balance. She nature carefully culls her herds, and the were-beings are one of her many reaping scythes of love. Embrace her love. Embrace her sovereign selection, and be cleaved by her fuzzy wolf scythes, and have your pets spayed and neutered. You may now spin the wheel. Close your eyes. Sit down. Lie down. Get comfortable. Relax. Drink a soothing tea. Cover yourself with a light blanket. Grasp in your hand an object that makes you feel secure. Slow your breathing. This isn't some kind of breathing race. Even if it was, you'd have no chance of winning. You haven't trained for it, and you have no natural aptitude. So you might as well just slow your breathing, like I said, and submit yourself to this visualization exercise. It's your birthday. I mean, it's my birthday, but let's say for the sake of this exercise that it's your birthday too. That means you can go anywhere you want, anywhere. Isn't being presented with an infinite number of options relaxing? You ponder your decision for several restful moments, and then you choose to go back to that gentle woods you visited in October. I mean, out of everywhere you could go, you pick to go somewhere you've already been. Which, I guess, decreases the likelihood of disappointment, so sure, let's go back to that exact same woods. It's a different season, so I guess that'll help. And it's a big woods, so you can take a different trail this time. At least take a different trail. Fine, you'll take the same trail. It's your birthday, even though it's really not. It's mine. You walk through the woods. The leaves and undergrowth are all green. The trunks and branches of the trees and the dirt path on which you tread are all brown. That about does it for the colors. Realistically, any animals that show up are also going to be more or less brown. You look at the scrap of paper in your hand and you read it again, silently, in your head. It reads, Come to the clearing. We have business to transact. You've read the scrap of paper more than 30 times now, and you're no less intrigued now than you were when you'd only read it less than 30 times. You're not sure what business you could possibly have to transact, and with whom you would transact it, but nevertheless, you've got your trusty business pen in your pocket. You've used this particular pen on all the business you've transacted since age 12, and it's never once failed you. Although many of the business transactions signed by the trusty business pen have failed you, but it's a trusty business pen, not a lucky business pen. Ahead of you, stretching across the trail between two trees, is a spider web. You cruise right through it, breaking its fine-spun filaments with your birthday face. Next, your feet slap out a healthy rhythm on the trail. Ahead of you on your left, you recognize a gnarled tree from your last visit to the woods. Over the winter, the tree has become even more gnarled. You hypothesize that cold causes gnarledness, and you accept this hypothesis as fact. That's the scientific method in action. 
This birthday is starting to get good. Then a question occurs to you. Where are you supposed to be going and why? You check the scrap of paper again and rediscover the answer to your question. To the clearing for a business transaction. Intriguing. Time for a break. You sit down on the forest floor with your back resting against a boulder that has either always been a boulder or, less likely, used to be a man much like yourself, but got turned into a boulder by way of wicked enchantment. You pull out a sandwich and pause. In your desire to spend some time alone on your birthday, you neglected to bring your food taster with you. Who is going to take the first bite of your sandwich to ensure that there's no poison in it? Then you remember, it's your birthday. No one would be low enough to try to poison you on your birthday. Also, you made the sandwich yourself and never let it out of your sight, so you're probably fine. You take a big bite of the sandwich and your body is immediately flooded with poison. It's an incredibly poisonous sandwich, and you just remembered why. You had intended for this sandwich to be a means of getting rid of some extra poison you had lying around the house. It was never intended to be eaten. As your vision begins to blur and your stomach clenches up, you just start grabbing the nearest plants and shoving them in your mouth. Just whatever, weeds, fungi, moss, a fair amount of dirt. Soon you're all healed up and back on your merry way to the clearing for business. This has been a pretty fun birthday, and if you're being honest, business in a clearing will only make it sweeter. After a few minutes, you remember that you're hungry. You're about to take another bite of your poisonous sandwich when you remember how it almost killed you. Why are you still carrying it? You hurl the sandwich into the undergrowth. Then you take two steps and stop. What if some kid finds that sandwich lying in the undergrowth and takes a bite? That kid might not have the wherewithal to just start shoving everything he can reach into his mouth in a desperate attempt to counteract the poison by mere chance. You should probably retrieve the sandwich and dispose of it properly. You turn and wade into the undergrowth, trying to spot the sandwich. The undergrowth is pretty thick, so this isn't going to be easy. You scan the ground as you walk, searching in vain for the poisonous sandwich, and pretty soon, you don't know where you are or which direction the trail is. An insect lands on your shoulder and pats it in an attempt to comfort you. You look at the scrap of paper in your hand. Come to the clearing. We have business to transact. Then you're struck by some birthday inspiration. You turn the scrap of paper so all the letters are upside down. Why, this scrap of paper isn't just a message, it's a map, too. You tear off through the undergrowth, leaping and springing and swinging on vines when they're handy. Occasionally, you come to a dead halt and study the map with a furrowed brow, muttering curses at its inscrutability. Eventually, in this manner, you arrive at a clearing. There's no business to transact anywhere in the clearing. This birthday has some explaining to do. Lying in the middle of the clearing is another map drawn on another scrap of paper. It's a map guiding you to where your poisonous sandwich landed after you threw it. But you've already moved past that. You're not going all the way back for that stupid sandwich. Then birthday inspiration strikes you again. You turn the map upside down and see that it was a message this whole time. The message reads, Surprise! You're not that intrigued. But then all your friends and family leap out of holes in the ground, holes in which they'd been hiding, waiting for you to arrive. Holes they'd concealed by covering the openings with green garbage can lids. Surprise, shout your friends and family. Happy birthday. You give them a weak smile. Where's the business, you ask. You have your trusty business pen in hand and you're clicking it. Your friends and family look nervous. They shoot each other troubled glances. It's a surprise party, says your mom. 
The scrap of paper promised business, you say, a feeling of delicious power rising within you. I was really looking forward to some business. You make your voice sound very disappointed. But we have cake, says your best friend. And look who's here so you can eat it without worrying about us poisoning you. It's your food taster. Your food taster steps forward and gives you a little wave. Parties aren't really his thing. Hmm, you say, making a big show of putting your trusty business pen back in your pocket. Everyone looks deflated. No one speaks. Then your dad steps forward and says, Actually, son, the business is on its way. It's just a little late, right, guys? Everyone looks at your dad in confusion, but some of them nod their heads and say, Uh, yep, the business should be here any minute. In fact, says your dad, I'll call to check on it right now. He hurries away with his cell phone in hand, dialing frantically. You can't hear what he's saying, but he's very animated. He looks desperate, angry. You've really put everyone out with your insistence on transacting some business at this surprise party. They're really bending over backward for you now. You smile and cut yourself a slice of cake. Your food taster walks towards you, but you wave him away with a condescending smile, and the look he gives you is like, Seriously? Then why am I even here? I canceled other plans for this stupid party. And your heart swells with joy. The perfect ending to a pretty good birthday. And now, listener, return from that clearing, that party, that birthday. But as you open your eyes and go on about your life, take the all-consuming ecstasy of a good birthday and the peace of Out of All Doors with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors. Thank you for listening to the ninth episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drent, and I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfoos, J.J. Evans, Casey Bai, Grang Lynch, Ben Bird, Steve Tartaglioni, Brent Koenigsman, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey Bai and J.J. Evans for making all the music used in the show. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdrent at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And I'm active on Twitter, too. I'm at Huge Pop. Here's another thing I'd love. If you went on iTunes and rated this podcast, maybe wrote a review, maybe even subscribed. And be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make is The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and you could rate and review those too. And a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart style phones. We'll be back in a month with episode 10 of Out of All Doors.
Then just toss in your little four-legged archaeologist and let him scoop and squirm around until he starts to howl with frantic delight from... (laughs) 